Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We have come to the end of a long, long week. Uh, And of course, the thing that was dominating everybody's attention this week was uh, or uh, the decisions of the United States Supreme Court, uh, which there were several, um, mostly one more disturbing than the next. Uh, We didn't think we could really uh, handle all that without the assistance of our friend, Supreme Court savant, Dahlia Lithwick. Uh, and she, after doing every TV show, radio show, and podcast in America this week, very kindly agreed to talk to us, um, even as most people are heading off to the beach. So we are very grateful. Thank you, Dahlia. Oh, thank you, David. This is it feels very fitting somehow to end this completely dispiriting week with my favorite Eeyore. Yep. <laughs> That's it's right. It's that bad. <laughs> That's right. Welcome to Eeyore today. But I think, you know, in some respects, um, being an Eeyore is borne out um every so often. And it certainly has been um this week. I'd like to go through the the the, the most significant cases this week, of course. Uh, having to do with uh, affirmative action, student loans, and uh, LGBTQ rights, such as they were and are. Uh, but first, I'd just like your reaction after you know this sort of last-minute barrage of decisions from this court that every so often makes sounds like it's rational and normal, but then reminds you in the most unpleasant ways possible that it doesn't really care about the law or uh, history or values or what the majority of the American people want. I mean, it's been such an interesting week, David, right? Like if we had taped this show on Tuesday after Morvey Harper came down, which was the independent state. I know that feels like a hundred years ago, but you'll remember when the court just summarily Smack down the notion that, you know, state courts couldn't review under state constitutions what uh, legislatures did with election law. 
And the court did the complete rational and sane thing, which was like, well, that's stupid. And so if we'd been talking on Tuesday night, I think we could have had a robust conversation about all the ways in which the court declined to take big swings this term, right? They refused to strike down the Indian Child Welfare Act. They refused to strike down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. You know, you and I talked about like that was a big deal. The court could have ended what was left of the Voting Rights Act. Instead, in, uh, you know, the Milligan case, the court gave a pretty, I think, forceful defense of the need for the Voting Rights Act. So we were seeing one thing. And then, as you say, the last two days of the term, it was the YOLO court all over again. It was just, you know, pedal to the metal. Let's break stuff. And that's what we're sitting in right now. We're sitting in three unbelievably consequential six to three decisions in which the dissenters are as plain as they can be that this is insane and there's nothing they can do about it. And if you look at them in the aggregate, you know, for the court to essentially overturn without overturning almost 50 years of affirmative action doctrine, for the court to essentially, for the first time ever, say there's a free speech exemption to public accommodation laws. And from now on, every same-sex couple in the country should be worried that they can be denied services because the service provider has some expressive component to what they say, and that the student loan forgiveness program is thumped down under something called the major questions doctrine, which isn't a real thing. That all happened in the span of 48 hours. So, you know, my top line sense is, in a way, it shows the degree to which we are just in thrall to this court where they can lift us up, they can put us down, they can make us, they can break us. They have all the power. We watch and hope. Sometimes they blink, and most of the time they don't. And the world is unrecognizable 48 hours later in terms of the legal landscape. I don't know if that's too much in the weeds or not enough, but it's a remarkable change in the landscape in a very, very short amount of time. Uh, no, it, it's not too much into the weeds. I think the whole point that we want to do is get deep, as deep as, as we can into these things and, and, and away from the emotional reactions to it all, which are strong, right? I mean, it's uh, you read uh, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Jackson's responses on uh, things like striking down affirmative action or things like striking down student loans, or this absolutely absurd. I mean, I, I think they saved the worst law for last, this this LGBTQ case where they essentially, without any kind of grounds, granted a new right to companies to discriminate against protected classes of people without any law to back that up, quite the contrary. It is, it's, 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 it's an emotional trial for the country, I think, because essentially we thought we were one kind of country with one set of rights. And after, you know, in, in the past year, we've really become something quite different. I think that's right. I also think um, it shows how, in some sense, how powerless we are to do anything about it. 
that we keep constructing these narratives. And I know you and I have done this together on this very show where we will tell the story of like, oh, look, you know, John Roberts is modulating, you know, his views in the face of extremism. Oh, look, you know, there's Amy Coney Barrett and there's, um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and they're siding with the chief in one case after another, which signals maybe that they know they overreached last year or they know that they're young and they want to be on the court for 30 years and they can go slow and they don't want to be associated with Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito who fly around the country and don't care. And all of those narratives are wrong. Like at the end of the day, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks trying to mollify ourselves that this was not a monarchic court that would just do what it wanted. And we tried to make sense of all that. And there's no affirmative action on college campuses left. And as you said, uh, same-sex couples, but not just same-sex couples. I mean, if you want to talk about 303 creative for a minute, the shocking part of that decision, Neil Gorsuch writing for the six justice majority, is there's no limiting principle. There's no reason to think that public accommodations laws that have a workaround now for people who don't want to be compelled to speak, that it would end with uh, opposing same-sex marriage, right? We already know this comes up in Justice Sotomayor's dissent, you know, funeral homes that will not uh, contend with somebody who has HIV, right? Somebody who's gay. We already know that we're going to see refusals of service around the country. Photographer, the hypothetical photographer who doesn't believe, he just doesn't believe that uh, there should be interracial marriage. And so he won't take school photos of children. I mean, this doesn't stop with the wedding website designer who wants to withhold service from gay couples because there's no principle here other than it's all compelled speech. And the thing that's really frightening about it is that like as a doctrinal matter, you know, Justice Gorsuch twists himself into a pretzel to sort of say compelled speech doctrine as with regard to private individuals somehow transfers over to for-profit businesses who theoretically, right, you hang out a shingle, you say, I'm serving all comers, you serve all comers. That was the whole point of those 1960s cases, right? Ollie's Barbecue and Heart of Atlanta Motel. And now apparently there's a workaround. And the workaround is you just get to say, that's a false marriage and I can't be compelled to support it. Or that's a false uh, uh, religious and I can't be compelled to give service to it. I mean, this is a shocking, shocking development. As you said, I think we're only understanding the tip of the iceberg. And the last thing that I've been sitting in, David, with this particular case, which I agree is just the final like gut punch is that in a year in which vigilantism is being rewarded in every single context, the idea that every single business owner is now a law unto herself, she can decide if it's expressive activity and she can decide who she wants to withhold service from. This doesn't end well for democracy. No, and it's, you know, expressive services covers a lot of ground, right? I mean, it, it, it's, 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 you know, this uh, uh, web design service that, that 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 appeared in this apparently wholly made up case. I mean, there were stories swirling yesterday that the gay couple involved was already married and not even gay. But 
I, I mean, you know, there's, you know, sort of insane stuff, but I assume that it applies to other kinds of things, right? It applies to bakeries. It applies to ads that people run on their networks, right? It applies to all sorts of things. Sure. I think that anybody who serves food is now going to say they're a steak artist and an ice cream artist. And, you know, anybody who does hair is now a hair artist. And this will ripple out. I mean, this will ripple out. And and again, so I, I suppose think we are podcast artists. We are. In fact, <laughs> um, we are. I think we are grouchiness artists at this point. <laughs> But I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I so much of the work that was done, the heavy lifting in the 1960s, when um, restaurants, hotels, you know, public accommodations would not serve black couples, uh, would not serve black uh, 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 clientele, echoes through these cases. There's just no way to think about how this doesn't unravel all of the achievements of what a state decides for itself. These are our public accommodations laws. This is not by fiat. Um, this is, this is a, a, a state determining that we want people to be treated respectfully by businesses. And that's scuppered by Neil Gorsuch saying this is compelled speech. So does it matter? Does it matter? I mean, the, the, there's the substance of this, but there's also a pattern in these things where they ignore precedent or reverse it arbitrarily. They um, make stuff up. You know, when they said they were originalists, we didn't know they were getting points for originality, right? That they were, you know, completely making stuff up out of whole cloth. To the extent to which they get away with that, how much easier is it going to make that to uh, outlaw gay marriage again, or 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 make it impossible for women to take the pill, or you know set up other kinds of uh, constraints? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think anybody who who read three hundred three creative feels that. Obergefell and marriage equality are on the solid footing that we believed they were on. And by the way, let's recall after Dobbs, we weren't sure marriage equality was on solid footing because it was in the list of the hit list that Clarence Thomas put in his concurrence, remember, in Dobbs, where he was like, these, these are the other things I'm coming after. So I'm not sure anyone felt great about marriage equality. And, and today we have less reason to feel confident about it. But I think the thing that you said to frame that is the takeaway, right? If you look at Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature case, that case was moot. There's no other way to look at it, right? The North Carolina Supreme Court had reversed in the time that the the case was pending. It was no longer an issue. They changed their ruling. Justice, Chief Justice Roberts is like, eh, it's probably moot. Let's take it anyway and takes it anyway, right? Student debt forgiveness case. There's no legal principle. There's no legal principle that is the, quote, major questions doctrine. That's just a thing that was hatched in a lab that says, if it's like a big salient question, we think that it has to be, you know, it, it can't be, the agencies can't do it. It has to be directly uh, delegated by uh, Congress. 
th- that's not a thing. And I think time and time again, and then you, you know, you mentioned 303 Creative, like maybe the most important thing anybody can say about that case is that Lori Smith, the web designer, never made a wedding wedding website for anyone, never denied service to anyone. There was no gay couple that came to her. This entire lawsuit was her saying, I'm super scared that if I do this thing, Colorado's will come after me under the public accommodations law. There's no injury. There's no harm. And so all of the rules that used to constrain the conservative legal movement, you know, you don't take cases that are moot. You don't take cases that aren't ripe. You don't take cases where there's no injury. It's gone. They're just taking the cases they want and then they apply rules that they want to apply. And the final cherry on top is they're not even brave enough to say in the affirmative action cases, by the way, PS were overturning almost 50 years of precedent. They pretend <laughs> they're like that Baki and Gruder and Fisher, the line of cases that preserved affirmative action. They pretend that that's still the law. It takes Clarence Thomas to say in concurrence, by the way, they just functionally overruled affirmative action. But it's it's the sort of secrecy and the smugness and the sort of like, don't pay any attention to what this hand is doing because this hand is taking away all your rights. That is just so maddening because it totally subverts everything John Roberts told us he stood for, like humility, umpire, balls and strikes, process, following the rules. Now it's just, let's do some stuff and let's do it now. Yeah, but I mean, it subverts everything that Scalia said. And, you know, all these people said, you know, we're going back to the letter, we are going back to the origins of the, we're going back to the intentions of the founders and so bullshit. What they're saying is we are lifelong appointment appointees to this court. We can do whatever the hell we want. We can uh, do it while we're taking money, by the way, from some of the people who are performing and uh, presenting in front of this court. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it, uh, particularly if you have a divided Congress. Um, and uh, uh, and you have a society that's so divided that we will not in our lifetimes ever see a constitutional amendment in the United States. So, you know, they they really are the last word and they're taking full advantage of it. Um, let, let me try, though, you know, every time you come here, we get like down into the slaws of despond. And I'm like, okay, we have to, we, we've got to, you know, find a way to lift Dahlia's spirits, particularly at the end of the week. So let me try to find some glimmer of hope in this. Okay. Let's take the affirmative action case. Um, uh, I, I'll, I'll start with something I found kind of strange about it, and then I'll get to the glimmer of hope. Uh, the, you know, it says, you know, with, that, you know, colleges can't behave this way. But then there's like two sentences that say, unless they're military academies, because the military academies need to have diversity in their leadership ranks to maintain effectiveness and unity among the rank and file. Um, Now, you know, I I found that a little weird because isn't that what colleges are doing for society at large? And isn't there a need to have the people who are coming out of our colleges reflect the diversity of our society so that our companies and our governments and everything else work well. But we'll set that aside for a moment. They did say, you can raise it in an essay. They did say that you could use criteria other than race. 
Um, they did acknowledge that, you know, if you need an oboist, you get an oboist for your band, right? Well, doesn't that leave the door pretty wide open for universities to essentially say, well, we're going to ask for longer essays. We're going to ask people to talk about the hardships they've faced in their lives. We're going to look at school systems and zip codes that are disadvantaged, uh, and we're going to compensate for that. And can't they sort of create an ersatz approach that gets you to the same place? Yeah, I mean, I think the first point is just such an interesting one, the carve out for the military academies. And there's an amazing line um, in Justice Jackson's just like magisterial dissent in this case, both dissents, by the way, both Sotomayor and Jackson just boom. Uh, But Jackson has this note about how is it possible that these interests that you say are so fuzzy and inchoate in, you know, diversity and interests in, you know, cohesion and having, you know, uh, well-integrated spaces, you know, are compelling with respect to the military and no, no place else, right? And she has this amazing line, David, where she says... Black America, uh, uh, the court has come to rest on the bottom line conclusion that racial diversity in higher education is only worth potentially preserving insofar as it might be needed to prepare black Americans and other underrepresented minorities for success in the bunker, not the boardroom. Right. Like you can send them off to war because that's necessary, but you can't uh, prepare them to succeed in corporate America. It's such a like, you know, incredibly eloquent statement of the problem and the chief justice has no answer to why he's carved out the military academies. But I think to your larger point, for sure, for sure, this reads to me like the chief justice slightly boxes himself in and allows for carve outs. Right. So there is clearly it's 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 hard to understand how the essay carve out is going to work because he both says and then unsays uh, that it can show up in your essay. Um, but I think the dissenters absolutely agree. Uh, this has to be uh, able to show up in your essay. Um, in fact, Justice Jenks makes the point that you can't, without suppressing speech and violating the 14th Amendment, keep an applicant from saying what their racial background is. And you're right. It certainly opens the door to, you know, using income, using uh, uh, neighborhood data. You know, there's other ways to do these changes. I mean, I guess I would say not to be like Debbie Downer again, because I know you're trying uh, manfully to buck me up here, but I will say in the states like California that have experimented with doing away with uh, race-based affirmative action and, you know, the data as well as I do, you know, the numbers of Black and Latino students at those schools have plummeted. Now they have clawed their way back uh, through heroic interventions to try to, you know, use these other proxies. And certainly I think we will see uh, those other proxies come into play, but it has taken years, right, for some of the UCs that saw, you know, 50% drop in minority students to get back close to where they were before. And so I think you're exactly right. There are escape hatches and it's the reason everyone who's listening got a note from their (laughs) alum, you know, association or the dean of the school they went to saying like, don't worry, we're going to fix this. It is fixable. But the fact that in some sense, what worries me a little bit is that the opponents of affirmative action have already made plain 
they're coming after you for that fix too. <laughs> you know, like go ahead and try to put it in your essay. We'll come after you for that too. And maybe the thing that makes me sad in all of this is just I've been thinking all day today that between the debt relief decision and the affirmative action decision, it's hard for me to not read these two cases together as signaling that schools are just going to be more inaccessible for exactly the sorts of that people. Was, I have to say, that was I was actually on a somebody else's podcast this morning when the debt case came down, and I just saw it as the other side of the coin. I just said, look, we're going to make it harder for people from disadvantaged backgrounds to be in schools or to afford schools simultaneously. And that, uh, you know, uh, now, but I'm I'm trying to pick you up here. We only have a couple of minutes left and it is the end of the week when we're recording this. And I know I'm sure you're heading off to San Tropez or someplace to celebrate uh, July 4th. Um, and I want you to do so in a good spirit. What about the, the, the debt relief? You know, you got to give credit to the Biden administration. They knew these were coming. They had little task forces standing by. They prepared what their responses would be. And on student debt relief, they said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to work it via regulatory channel and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, they are going to try to fight the good fight and do so consistent with the law as though these people were playing fair with the law, which of course we know they're not. But, but you got to, there has to be like a glimmer of hope in that, right? That the Biden administration stepped right up to bat as soon as the pitch passed them by. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a hundred percent right. And I think, you know, it was very clear to me that they're like, fine, we can't do this pursuant to the Heroes Act. We got other ways to do it. That was the clean and easy way. We'll do it a different way. And I think that you're exactly right. They were so prepared. Um, you know, I, 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 people are going to get very depressing notes saying you got to cough up money, uh, starting in September. And it's, it's, um, either going to make them get out and vote or it's going to make them mad at the Biden administration for making promises that couldn't be kept. But I completely agree with you that, the Biden administration was really ready to message this in a way that was effective. And I think also, you know, I'm thinking of the president's statements yesterday about the court and being willing to say this is not a normal court. Uh, this is not OK. <laughs> I don't yeah, know what he's, he's going to do not, about it. Right. Exactly. He's not willing <laughs> to expand the court, even though, you know, when the court was expanded to nine, 140 years ago or whatever it was, we were a much different country. There were nine circuits. There are now 13 circuits. There are plenty of reasons to expand the court that would be consistent with having a larger country. Uh, might even work better. Um, okay, I'm going to end uh, with a, the one last effort to, to find a glimmer of hope in all of this. Um, and that's the point you made. I kind of look at 2024 and people are like, well, you know, it's Biden versus Trump and I don't like Trump or Biden's too old or whatever they, they say. And I think that the 2024 election is going to be, you know, Americans who like freedom and democracy versus the Supreme Court, you know, and that there are going to be women who are showing up saying, you took away my ability to control my own body. I'm not going to stand for it. And you're going to have the gay community stand up and say, you've made it possible to discriminate against me. I'm not going to stand for it. And you're going to have students who are paying those 
debts each month, going out and saying, you are screwing me. I have this burden now for my whole life that I didn't have before, uh, or at least would have been reduced before. Uh, I'm not going to stand for it. And you know, you're going to have people say, you know, you've got these gun control laws that make it unsafe for my children to go to school that make it unsafe for me to go to the mall. I'm not going to stand for it. And I think those are the things, those are the issues today that make people want to turn out and vote. Um, and it's a good thing because it's going to be hard for Democrats to hold on to the Senate. And if they don't, we're going to start making more people on the court or they're going to be an effort, certainly, by the Republicans to make more people in the court look like this high court, which would be horrifying. So don't you don't you don't you have a little bit of hope? Because recent elections have shown these things are good motivators. We we know exactly the effect that Dobbs had on the 2022 election. And we also know, right, in every state that put it on the ballot, uh Abortion one, including in Kansas, right? We know in Kentucky. So we know what Dobbs did to goose an understanding that if you don't like this, you better go deal with it at the ballot box. And I'll add one to your pile. The court just today on Friday uh, agreed to hear this case, Rahimi, which is an insane, insane uh, appeal that comes up from the Fifth Circuit, where that you know that's the 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 court that is just the Trumpiest Trump appeals court in the world, and that was a decision the, that came down last February from that court that held that a federal law that prohibited people from possessing a firearm while they're under a domestic violence restraining order was unconstitutional under Bruin, the case that the court decided last year, right, where they massively expanded Heller. So the court on Friday, the end of the term, they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to hear that case, that case that says that since there was no such thing as a domestic violence restraining order when the Second Amendment was drafted, I guess there's no historic analog. So it's unconstitutional. So the court it slightly scares me, David, that they have no fear and no shame that they took that case on the last day of the term. But, oh, boy, they want to be in this fight. They want to be in a fight about whether, you know, democracy decides gun law or they do. And the fact that they took what I think you're right is one of the most salient voting issues, which is guns. And they took this extremely, extremely terrifying case to do it tells me like, okay, bring it. They want to bring it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I hope that it motivates people. We need um, Democrats in the Senate and the house, because uh, that is the only way we're ever going to get to address the underlying ethical issues here. It's the only way we're going to be able to challenge the legitimacy of some of these people. It's the only way we're going to get more judges in our system um, who um, uh, actually are concerned about the law, the constitution and fundamental rights. Um, and, uh, you know, it, you know, if one's looking for some kind of, uh, silver lining in the cloud of this week, perhaps it is the motivation to do what's necessary next year. In any event, I suspect we will be discussing it. I hope we will be discussing it with you. I'm sorry to add to the burdens of your week here, but as a Supreme Court watcher, um, you know, they're off till the first Monday in October. I hope you will uh, um, be, uh, you know, doing the same thing and 
you know, going off to, uh, I don't know, spas in Scandinavia or whatever it is you do for three months. Whatever it is, it will not be thousand dollar bottle of wines like Justice Alito. I can assure you. And the wine will super yachts, you know, like Clarence Thomas. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anyway, um, you you are um, great, um, and uh, everybody knows it, and I'm glad they know it, and I'm glad you showed up here today. And I hope you have a good holiday, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, Dahlia. Thank everybody for listening. Have a great holiday weekend, or if you happen to listen to this after the holiday, I hope you had a great holiday weekend. Uh, Bye-bye.